0: I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format as well as question breakdowns so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here's our question dissection for today.
1: Welcome to the Step 2 Secrets podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast here with the author of Step 2 Secrets, Dr. Ted O'Connell. With each of these chapters, we're going to be
0: uh, focusing on a practice question that has been generously provided
1: by Elsevier. All right, so without any further delay, let's get into today's practice question. I'll go ahead and read this question. We have a 48-year-old male who is seen in the office by his surgeon for a post-op visit two weeks following an operation. He underwent a total thyroidectomy for a large bilateral complex multinodular goiter. Today, he's doing well except for some generalized muscle weakness and paresthesias around his mouth. The surgeon orders an electrocardiogram, which is normal. Save for prolonged QT interval. Which of the following most likely explains this patient's symptoms? The answer choices are A, low serum thyroid hormone level, B, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, C, occult metastatic thyroid cancer, and D, post-surgical hypoparathyroidism. All right, Dr. O'Connell. How do we approach this? Well, with this question, uh, the, the real key
0: here is that the patient recently underwent a thyroidectomy and kind of knowing uh, the risks uh, associated with thyroidectomy are important. And then focusing in on the information that's provided in the question stem, specifically the generalized muscle weakness and perioral tingling should start to uh make the reader consider the possibility of hypocalcemia. And then further, we're given the information on the EKG of a prolonged QT interval, which is also associated with hypocalcemia. So the answer in this question requires the test taker to take the next step and go from hypocalcemia to figuring out what can uh, cause that. So the answer in this case is post-surgical hypoparathyroidism. As we mentioned, the patient presented with signs and symptoms of hypocalcemia with the perioral tingling, as well as a muscle weakness and the QT prolongation. In a patient who's just had a thyroidectomy, it's likely that his parathyroid glands were either removed or damaged during the surgery because they're anatomically very close to the thyroid gland and it's possible that if they were damaged they were they'll partially or completely recover their function but because the patient's symptomatic it would be appropriate to check calcium, phosphorus and parathyroid hormone levels and then treat accordingly
1: okay yeah, I was going to say, and that's probably another important point to highlight is, is the fact that it seems to be kind of a favorite in the practice question space and, and review books that if somebody undergoes a thyroidectomy, be on the lookout for some consequence to the parathyroid glands that should be drilled into the memory. Absolutely. All right. What about some of these other options? Probably the most attractive distractor given the history would be choice A, which was low serum thyroid hormone levels. Thyroid hormone is produced by the thyroid gland, so if you have a thyroidectomy, it's very likely you will have low serum thyroid hormone levels. Anything else to say about that besides maybe that patients who undergo thyroidectomy are going to be on lifelong thyroid hormone replacement?
0: Yes, after a a total thyroidectomy, uh, the patient will require lifelong thyroid hormone replacement. And as you said, even if the dosing were inadequate, that would not lead to hypocalcemia. And usually, after you start somebody on thyroid hormone replacement or change doses, you want, because of the half life of the um, thyroid hormone, you want to recheck levels in about six weeks. So, doing so at this two week visit would be too early.
1: Fair enough. All right, let's get into today's chapter. This is chapter
0: one, acid base and electrolytes from USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Number one, how do you analyze arterial blood gas values? Remember three points. One, the pH tells you whether the primary process is an acidosis or an alkalosis. The body will compensate as much as it can, a secondary process. Number two, CO2. If the carbon dioxide, CO2, is high, the patient either has a respiratory acidosis when the pH is less than 7.4, or is compensating for metabolic alkalosis with a pH of greater than 7.4. If the carbon dioxide is low, the patient either has respiratory alkalosis with a pH of over 7.4, or is compensating for metabolic acidosis with a pH less than 7.4. Number three bicarbonate if the bicarbonate is high the patient either has metabolic alkalosis with a pH greater than 7.4 or is compensating for respiratory acidosis with a pH less than 7.4 if bicarbonate is low the patient either has metabolic acidosis with pH less than 7.4 or is compensating for respiratory alkalosis with a pH of greater than 7.4 number 2 true or false The body does not compensate beyond a normal pH. True. For example, a patient with metabolic acidosis will eliminate carbon dioxide. The body will increase the respiratory rate to help blow off carbon dioxide. In order to help restore a normal pH, and a compensatory respiratory alkalosis will develop. However, the compensatory alkalosis will not correct the pH to greater than 7.4. Overcorrection does not occur. Number 3. List the common causes of acidosis. Respiratory acidosis is caused by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, drugs such as opioids, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, alcohol, and other respiratory depressants, by chest wall problems such as paralysis and pain, and by sleep apnea. Metabolic acidosis is caused by ethanol, DKA, uremia, lactic acidosis resulting from sepsis, shock, or things like bowel ischemia, from methanol and ethylene glycol, aspirin and salicylate overdose, diarrhea, and from carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Number four, list the common causes of alkalosis. Respiratory alkalosis can be caused by anxiety and hyperventilation and by aspirin and salicylate overdose. Metabolic alkalosis can be caused by diuretics, except the carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, vomiting, volume contraction, antacid abuse or milk alkali syndrome, and by hyperaldosteronism. Number five, what type of acid based disturbance does aspirin overdose cause? Respiratory alkalosis and metabolic acidosis, two different primary disturbances. Look for coexisting tinnitus, hypoglycemia, Vomiting, and a history of swallowing several pills. Alkalinization of the urine with bicarbonate speeds excretion. Consider dialysis if a patient has a pH less than 7.1, altered mental status, pulmonary edema, an initial salicylate level greater than 100, or renal failure. Number six, what happens to the blood gas of patients with chronic lung conditions? Many people with chronic lung conditions such as COPD develop a chronic respiratory acidosis because of carbon dioxide retention. During an exacerbation of a respiratory disorder, the respiratory acidosis worsens and a compensatory metabolic alkalosis develops. As the respiratory acidosis improves with treatment of the exacerbation, the metabolic alkalosis is no longer a compensatory mechanism and becomes a primary disturbance. However, in certain people with chronic lung conditions, especially those with sleep apnea, pH may be alkaline during the day because breathing improves when awake. As a side note, remember that sleep apnea, like other chronic lung diseases, can cause right-sided heart failure. Number seven, should you give bicarbonate to a patient with acidosis? For purposes of step two, almost never. First, give IV fluids and treat the underlying disorder. If all other measures fail and the pH remains less than seven, bicarbonate may be given. Number eight, the blood gas of a patient with asthma has changed from alkalotic to normal, and the patient seems to be sleeping. Is the patient ready to go home? For step two, this scenario means that the patient is probably crashing. Asthmatic patients are supposed to be slightly alkalotic during an asthma attack. Remember that pH is initially high in patients with an asthma exacerbation because they are breathing rapidly, eliminating carbon dioxide, and developing a respiratory alkalosis. If the patient becomes tired and breathing slows, carbon dioxide will begin to rise and pH will begin to normalize. Eventually, the patient becomes more acidotic and requires emergency intubation if appropriate measures are not taken. If this scenario is mentioned on boards, the appropriate response is to prepare for possible elective intubation and to continue aggressive medical treatment with beta agonists, steroids, and oxygen. Fatigue secondary to work of breathing is an indication for intubation. Number nine, list the signs and symptoms of hyponatremia. These are lethargy, seizures, mental status changes or confusion, cramps, anorexia, and coma. How do you ter- determine the cause of hyponatremia? The first step in determining the cause is to look at the volume status. If it's hypovolemic, Think of dehydration, diuretics, diabetes, Addison's disease, in which case you'll see high potassium. If it's of euvolemic hyponatremia, think of SIADH, psychogenic polydipsia, and oxytocin use. If it's a hypervolemic hyponatremia, think of heart failure, nephrotic syndrome, cirrhosis, toxemia, and renal failure. Number 11. How is hyponatremia treated? For hypovolemic hyponatremia, the step 2 treatment is normal saline. Euvolemic and hypervolemic hyponatremia are treated with fluid restriction. Diuretics may be needed for hypervolemic hyponatremia. Number 12. What medication is used to treat SIADH if water restriction fails? Demeclocycline, which induces nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Number 13, what happens if hyponatremia is corrected too quickly? You may cause osmotic demyelination syndrome, formerly called central pontine myelinolysis, which can result in irreversible or only partially reversible symptoms such as dysarthria, paresis, behavioral disturbances, lethargy, confusion, and coma. Hypertonic saline is used only when a patient has seizures from severe hyponatremia. And even then, only briefly and cautiously. Normal saline is a better choice 99% of the time for board purposes. In chronic, severe, symptomatic hyponatremia, the rate of correction should not exceed 0.5 to 1 milliequivalents per liter per hour. Number 14. What causes spurious or false hyponatremia? Hyperglycemia. Once the glucose is over 200 mg per deciliter, the sodium decreases by 1.6 milliequivalents per liter for each rise of 100 mg per deciliter in glucose. Make sure you know how to make this correction. Hyperproteinemia can also do it, and so can hyperlipidemia. In these instances, the lab value is low, but the total body sodium is normal. Do not give the patient extra salt or saline. Number 15. What causes hyponatremia in postoperative patients? The most common cause is the combination of pain and narcotics, causing SIADH, with over-aggressive administration of IV fluids. A rare cause that you may see on the USMLE is adrenal insufficiency, particularly in a patient who is on chronic steroids and had medication stopped before surgery. In this instance, potassium is high and the blood pressure is low. Number 16. What is the classic cause of hyponatremia in pregnant patients about to deliver? Oxytocin, which has an antidiuretic hormone-like effect. Number 17. What are the signs and symptoms of hypernatremia? Basically, the same as the signs and symptoms of hyponatremia. Mental status changes or confusion, seizures, hyperreflexia, and coma. Number 18. What causes hypernatremia? The most common cause is dehydration, free water loss, due to inadequate fluid intake relative to bodily needs. Watch for diuretics, diabetes insipidus, diarrhea, and renal disease, as well as iatrogenic causes, such as administration of too much hypertonic IV fluid. Sickle cell disease, which may lead to renal damage, and isosthenuria, the inability to concentrate urine, is a rare cause of hypernatremia, as are hypokalemia and hypercalcemia, which also impair the kidney's concentrating ability. Number 19. How is hypernatremia treated? Treatment involves water replacement, but the patient is often severely dehydrated. Therefore, normal saline is used most frequently. Once the patient is hemodynamically stable, he or she is often switched to D5 half-normal saline. 5% dextrose in water, should not be used for hypernatremia. Number 20. What are the signs and symptoms of hypokalemia? Hypokalemia causes muscular weakness, which can lead to paralysis and ventilatory failure. When smooth muscles are also affected, patients may develop ileus and or hypotension. Best known and most tested, however, is the effect of hypokalemia on the heart. Electrocardiogram findings include loss of the T wave or T wave flattening the presence of U waves, premature ventricular and atrial complexes, and ventricular and atrial tachyarrhythmias. Number 21. What is the effect of pH on serum potassium? Changes in pH cause changes in serum potassium as a result of cellular shift. Alkalosis causes hypokalemia, whereas acidosis causes hyperkalemia. For this reason, Bicarbonate is given to severely hyperkalemic patients. If the pH is deranged, normalization will most likely correct the potassium derangement automatically without the need to give or restrict potassium. Number 22. Describe the interaction between digoxin and potassium. The heart is particularly sensitive to hypokalemia in patients taking digoxin. Potassium levels should be monitored carefully in all patients taking digoxin especially if they are also taking diuretics, a common occurrence. Number 23. How should potassium be replaced? Like all electrolyte abnormalities, hypokalemia should be corrected slowly. Oral replacement is preferred, but if the potassium must be given intravenously for severe derangement, do not give more than 20 mEq per hour. Put the patient on an EKG monitor when giving IV potassium, because potentially fatal arrhythmias may develop. Number 24. When hypokalemia persists even after administration of significant amounts of potassium, what should you do? Check the magnesium level. When magnesium is low, the body cannot retain potassium effectively. Correction of a low magnesium level allows the potassium level to return to normal. Number 25. What are the signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia? Weakness and paralysis may occur, but the cardiac effects are the most tested. EKG changes, in order of increasing potassium value, include tall, peaked T waves, widening of the QRS, prolongation of the PR interval, loss of P waves, and a sine wave pattern on the EKG. Arrhythmias include asystole and ventricular fibrillation. Number 26 what causes hyperkalemia? Renal failure, either acute or chronic. Severe tissue destruction, because potassium has a high intracellular concentration. Hypoaldosteronism, watch for hyporenemic hypoaldosteronism in diabetes. Medications, so stop potassium sparing diuretics, beta blockers, NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, and angiotensin receptor blockers adrenal insufficiency, which is also associated with low sodium and low blood pressure. Number 27. What should you suspect if an asymptomatic patient has hyperkalemia? With hyperkalemia, the first consideration, especially if the patient is asymptomatic and the EKG is normal, is whether the lab specimen is hemolyzed. Hemolysis causes a false hyperkalemia due to high intracellular potassium concentrations. Repeat the test. Number 28. The specimen was not hemolyzed. What is the first treatment? Get an EKG first to look for cardiotoxicity. In general, the best therapy for hyperkalemia is decreased potassium intake and administration of oral sodium polystyrene resin called k But if the potassium level is greater than 6.5 or cardiac toxicity is apparent, There's more than peaked T waves. Immediate intravenous therapy is needed. First, give calcium gluconate, which is cardioprotective, although it does not change the potassium levels. Then, give sodium bicarbonate, because alkalosis causes potassium to shift inside cells. And also, give glucose with insulin, because insulin also forces potassium inside cells, and the glucose prevents hypoglycemia with the insulin administration. Beta-2 agonists also drive potassium into cells and can be given if the other choices are not listed on the exam. If the patient has renal failure or initial treatment is ineffective, prepare to institute dialysis emergently. Number 29. What are the signs and symptoms of hypocalcemia? Hypocalcemia produces neurologic findings, the most tested of which is tetany. Tapping on the facial nerve at the angle of the jaw elicits contraction of the facial muscles, called sex sign, and inflation of a tourniquet or blood pressure cuff elicits hand muscle carpopedal spasms, called trousseau sign. Other signs and symptoms are depression, encephalopathy, dementia, laryngospasm, and seizures. The classic EKG finding is QT interval prolongation. Number 30. What should you do if the calcium level is low? Check the albumin and correct the calcium as necessary to account for hypoalbuminemia. Remember that hypoproteinemia, that is low albumin, of any etiology can cause hypocalcemia because the protein-bound fraction of calcium is decreased. In this instance, however, the patient is asymptomatic because the ionized unbound, physiologically active fraction of calcium is unchanged. Thus, you should first check the albumin level and or the ionized or free calcium level to make sure true hypocalcemia is present. For every 1 gram per deciliter decrease in albumin below 4 grams per deciliter, correct the calcium by adding 0.8 mg per deciliter to the given calcium value. What causes hypocalcemia? Number 31. DeGeorge syndrome. Look for tetany 24 to 48 hours after birth and an absent thymic shadow on x-ray. Renal failure. Remember the kidney's role in vitamin D metabolism. Hypoparathyroidism. Watch for a post-thyroidectomy patient. All four parathyroids may have been accidentally removed. Vitamin D deficiency pseudo-hypoparathyroidism. Look for short fingers, short stature, intellectual disability, and normal levels of parathyroid hormone with end-organ unresponsiveness to parathyroid hormone. Acute pancreatitis. And finally, renal tubular acidosis. Number 32. Describe the relationship between low calcium and low magnesium. It is difficult to correct hypocalcemia Until hypomagnesemia of any cause is also corrected. Number 33, how does pH affect calcium levels? Alkalosis can cause symptoms similar to hypocalcemia through effects on the ionized fraction of calcium. Alkalosis causes calcium to shift intracellularly. Clinically, this scenario is most common with hyperventilation anxiety syndromes, in which the patient eliminates too much. CO2, becomes alkalotic, and develops perioral and extremity tingling. Treat by correcting the pH. Reduce anxiety if hyperventilation is the cause. Number 34. Describe the relationship between calcium and phosphorus. Phosphorus and calcium levels usually go in opposite directions. When one goes up, the other goes down. Derangements in one can cause problems with the other. This relationship becomes clinically important in patients with chronic renal failure in whom you must not only try to raise calcium levels with vitamin D and calcium supplements, but also restrict or reduce phosphorus. Number 35, what are the signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia? Hypercalcemia is often asymptomatic and discovered by routine lab tests. When symptoms are present, recall the following rhyme, Bones, stones, groans, and psychiatric overtones. For bones, bone changes such as osteopenia and pathologic fractures can occur. Stones stand for kidney stones and polyuria. Groans is for abdominal pain, anorexia, constipation, ileus, nausea, and vomiting. And psychiatric overtones is for depression, psychosis, and delirium or confusion. Abdominal pain may also be due to peptic ulcer disease and or pancreatitis, both of which have an increased incidence with hypercalcemia. The EKG classically shows QT interval shortening when hypercalcemia is present. Number 36. What causes hypercalcemia? Hyperthyroidism is the most common cause of hypercalcemia in outpatients. In inpatients, the most common cause is malignancy. Check the parathyroid hormone, or PTH, level to differentiate hyperparathyroidism from other causes. Other causes include vitamin A or D intoxication, sarcoidosis, thiazide diuretics, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, look for low urinary calcium, which is rare with hypercalcemia, and finally, immobilization. Hyperproteinemia, for example, high albumin, If any etiology can cause hypercalcemia because of an increase in the protein-bound fraction of calcium, but the patient is asymptomatic because the ionized or unbound fraction is unchanged. Number 37. Why is asymptomatic hypercalcemia usually treated? Prolonged hypercalcemia can cause nephrocalcinosis, urolithiasis, and renal failure due to calcium salt deposits in the kidney and may result in bone disease secondary to loss of calcium. Number 38. How is hypercalcemia treated? First, give IV fluids. Then, once the patient is well hydrated, give furosemide, a loop diuretic, to cause calcium diuresis. Thiazides are contraindicated because they increase serum calcium levels. Other treatments include phosphorus administration, Use oral phosphorus because IV administration can be dangerous. Calcitonin, bisphosphonates, plicomycin, or prednisone, especially for malignancy-induced hypercalcemia. Correction of the underlying cause of hypercalcemia is the ultimate goal. The previous measures are all temporary until definitive treatment can be given. For hyperparathyroidism, surgery is the treatment of choice. Number 39. In what clinical scenario is hypomagnesemia usually seen? Alcoholism. Magnesium is wasted through the kidneys. Number 40. What are the signs and symptoms of hypomagnesemia? Signs and symptoms are similar to those of hypocalcemia. That is, prolonged QT interval on the EKG and possibly tetany. Number 41. In what clinical scenario is hypermagnesemia seen? Hypermagnesemia is classically iatrogenic in pregnant patients who are treated for preeclampsia with magnesium sulfate. It also commonly occurs in patients with renal failure. Patients who receive magnesium sulfate should be monitored carefully because the physical findings of hypermagnesemia are progressive. The initial sign is a decrease in deep tendon reflexes. Then hypotension and respiratory failure occur sequentially. Number 42. How is hypermagnesemia treated? First, stop any magnesium infusion. Remember the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, and intubate the patient if respiratory failure is pending. If the patient is stable, start IV fluids. Furosemide can be given next, if needed, to cause a magnesium diuresis. The last resort is dialysis. Number 43. In what clinical scenarios is hypophosphatemia seen? What are the signs and symptoms? Uncontrolled diabetes, especially diabetic ketoacidosis, and alcoholism. Signs and symptoms of hypophosphatemia include neuromuscular disturbances, such as encephalopathy and weakness, rhabdomyolysis, especially in alcoholics, anemia, and white blood cell and platelet dysfunction. Number 44. What is the IV fluid of choice in hypovolemic patients? Normal saline or lactated ringer solution, regardless of other electrolyte problems. First, fill the tank. Then, correct the imbalances that the kidney cannot sort out on its own. Number 45. What is the maintenance fluid of choice for patients who are not eating? One-half normal saline with 5% dextrose in adults. Typically, one-fourth normal saline with 5% dextrose in children under 10 kilograms, and one-third or one-half normal saline with 5% dextrose in children over 10 kilograms. Number 46. Should anything be added to the IV fluid for patients who are not eating? Yes, potassium chloride, 10 or 20 milliequivalents, is usually added to a liter of IV fluid each day to prevent hypokalemia, assuming that the baseline potassium level is normal. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3. We actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.